360 degrees. High high, 360 degrees. High high, 306, 306, 360 degrees. High high. Buenas noches, mi gente, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from KPFA in Huchin, Miwok, Tiwa, Piro, Ut, Pueblo's occupied territory, also known to settlers as Antioch, Berkeley, and Albuquerque. We are your hosts tonight, Sentient Shiloh, a.k.a. DJ Lowe, and... Me, Free Roland Franklin, and on tonight's show, we will discuss settler colonialism with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz and Mitch Jezerich, and from the Pacifica Radio Archives, Voices That Changed the World. We will close out the fun drive tonight and tell you how to keep the longest listener-sponsored radio station alive and on the air, KPFA. So grab your tea or preferred evening beverage and get comfy as we transport you to our virtual living room conversation here on KPFA. Cause I'm broke again Always running late I hope the liquor store is open
I, I, I got cars, weavers, beaters, and designers on my team. I got braiders, hella famous, that I'm signing to my team. In my limousine, gonna look steezy. Next to mine, Digi Queen. Yeah, that's my most McGee. I know, I know ballers, I know chiefs, I know riders from the east. I know educated natives down to pick it in the streets. Middle figure police, but they come in peace. I know red skin hippies that be giving me the creeps. I know beauty, I know beach, I know savages and freaks. And I know. No, no, ain't a lick, bougie native, yes indeed, art exhibit to the club, and we roll it 20 deep, copper on my neck, gold on my ring, feather on my hat, skin stitch chin, hundred warriors on my back, daily drumming when I sing, man there ain't no way around it, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bougie native, I got turquoise on my red, we them bougie natives, five rings up on my fist, we them bougie natives, big hat with the bread, we them bougie natives, Hey, hey, we are back here on KPFA on 94.1 FM, and you're listening to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. The song you just heard is called Bougie Natives from the Snotty Nose Res Kids album Trapline, released in 2019. Snotty Nose Res Kids are a First Nations hip-hop duo from Canada, Darren Young D. Metz and Quinton Young Trabez Nice, originally from Kitimat Village. And we will be listening to Indigenous historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz in conversation with Mitch Jesuit. And she writes, in her book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, she quotes anthropologist Patrick Wolfe, the question of genocide is never far from discussions of settler colonialism. Land is life, or at least land is necessary for life. Writing U.S. history from an Indigenous people's perspective requires rethinking the consensual national narrative. That narrative is wrong or deficient, not in its facts, dates, or details, but rather in its essence. Inherent in the myth we've been taught is an embrace of settler colonialism and genocide. The myth persists not for a lack of free speech or poverty of information, but rather for an absence of motivation to ask questions that challenge the core of the scripted narrative of the origin story of this place. How might acknowledging the reality of U.S. history work to transform society? That is the central question of this book. We will be talking about that in the next hour. All right. Thank you, Shiloh B., DJ Lowe. And that is a quote from the opening of the book, Indigenous People's History by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who's going to be our guest tonight. We're going to feature clips uh, from an interview, but first we want to thank everybody that made a donation to KPFA over these past two weeks. We let you know that we were in trouble and you really came through for us. So from everyone here at Full Circle, myself and Shiloh included, thank you so much for helping keep this station alive. We really appreciate it. And we want to remind you that although the fund drive is officially over, We will still be asking for your donations on the air during Full Circle tonight. But we also want to remind you that you can donate online for the next couple weeks. 
And most of the thank you gifts will still be available there. So that's kpfa.org. Head over there and click on that donate tab. Or if you'd like to call, you can call 1-800-439-5732. And you can remember that by remembering 1-800-HEY-KPFA. And as Shiloh mentioned a moment ago, tonight we are going to feature a conversation between KPFA Letters and Politics host Mitch Jezerich and author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. This can be your thank you gift tonight, this audio collection for a donation to KPFA. You can head over to kpfa.org and check out the Voices That Changed the World audio collection. You could also get this as part of the Letters and Politics U.S. History Pack. But let's check out the audio now. This is Mitch Jezerich speaking with an Indigenous Peoples historian, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And they start their conversation talking about what they term the foot soldiers of empire here in the United States. And that's the Scots-Irish. Check this out right here on KPFA. Yeah, the Scots-Irish are a really important historical group to understand. Um, sort of professional settler colonialists, England's conquest of Wales, Scotland, and then Ireland is what created the um, United Kingdom or Britain. And before that, it was just England. And each of them had their processes, but by the time they got to Ireland, it was the beginning of the age of imperialism and, and colonialism beginning. You know, it was so in England, rather than the Spanish and Portuguese and Dutch going out over the Atlantic to colonize, they they focused on Ireland first, but they built all their institutions in that long period of, of the conquest of Ireland. And they they did the very first I think it was, you know, the invention of settler colonialism. In some ways, the Spanish Reconquista, as they call it, the expulsion of the Jews and Muslims in the Iberian Peninsula was a, was a settler colonialism, pushing them out and then deporting them in 1492 and 1493, and then Castilian and Aragonese settlers taking their place. But they didn't then pursue that as their form of colonialism overseas. They used the indigenous peoples uh, as labor, you know, and, and enslaved them. But England, or by then it was Britain without Ireland. In the conquest of Ireland, they you know, this was the Calvinists. This was also the beginning of the Calvinists, which made them a little different than the Catholic monarchies. They decided the only way they could defeat the Irish, who were fighting back, fighting against being conquered, is really a genocide, you know, to get rid of them. And so they invented these methods of taking heads 
then they would place these heads around on the roads so that the people, relatives who would see their relative's head there would be terrified and submit. And so they use these methods for them fleeing, you know, so they're pushing them out of their farms and then taking them. So there was this disgruntled population in Scotland that had been conquered of um, displaced people and people who had lost their land. So offering them as colonial subjects to come and have free land and take, you know, the Irish land. So that's how you have the, you know, the, the Northern Ireland Ulster. It's still 50 percent indigenous Irish. They never got rid of all of them, but that that's a genocide in itself, you know, 50 percent of the people. You wipe out and replace with other people. But over time in doing that, uh, these Scots-Irish settlers then, they were caught up in the British Empire's colonialism overseas. So they were the, you know, ready settlers. They also, because they um, were mostly poor when they came, didn't do well always and ended up being sharecroppers or whatever. And when they're then offered, well, you can have free land if you take this boat overseas in one way. Um, so they became the 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 settlers, mostly you know, uh, not in the you know in not in the northeast, but in the middle and and lower part of the thirteen colonies. And they then, on their own uh, volition, they kept losing, you know, being losers, and then pushing further. And so the British and then the, you know, the United States, when it came to exist, found them, you know, that they were, they were the, um, I call them the foot soldiers of empire. They were the ones that pushed into these areas and on their own formed deadly militias to just wipe out Indian villages, take their land. And then either the colony or later the United States would then include that in so that's really the expansion across country and at least in the middle and southern part going across country and then in the whole west descendants of these Scots Irish played a, a big role. I mean they were the ones that came in and, and displaced native people throughout the South in the West. There is a cultural element that's very strong there can be other people like my grandfather who just was the opposite, you know, but was a real fighter. I mean, if you get them on your side, you know. It's, a... it's so interesting because we recently did a series of conversations like we're doing now with Eric Foner on the Civil War era. And so much of that period was about free land, offering free land to the Scotch-Irish and, you know, you have the Mexican-American War, you have the conquest of the West that occurs afterwards. And it's always, and this is what we did, too, it's always framed as the issue of are these states going to be free states or are they going to be slave states? Right. And that's what brought the Civil War. And that part was true. The part that's always missing from that story and not told at the same time is the conquest of indigenous land and what happened right. to the indigenous people in that process. U.S. historians leaving out, 
you know, simply this this absence of the indigenous people's existence. And you can't even begin to talk about uh, the cotton kingdom without understanding where that land came from, you know, the, and that it was a 50-year, a half-century of indigenous people resisting farmers, indigenous farmers, you know, traditional farmers. Um, the eastern half of the United States was one of the seven sites of the origins of agricultural civilization. You know, this is the richest farmland in the world, of seven regions of the world. And... Um, so without knowing that this was this is not just taking wilderness land or something this is taking already fully developed manicured well taken care of land villages roads deer parks uh fisheries on the coast appropriating it or they never could have developed the largest capitalist economy in the world by 1850. And that's why the, the history is of everything is flawed. I think, you know, just the concept of, of settler colonialism that Native people have pushed to the forefront, and it, it has its limitations because of slavery. There, there's just no way you can... Uh, characterize uh, descendants of slaves as settler colonialists. But after the Civil War, they were put in the position of behaving like settler colonialists, being given Indian land taken, that land in Oklahoma that and in Kansas that were, were, were given to the valiant combat soldiers, African-American and their families uh, were was taken from Native people to to give. So how do we deal with all of those contradictions and not just say it's uh, complicated or it's are uh, bad and good people? Um, we have to understand how colonialism works. There's always a a kind of tidal push in its favor. You know, because it, it is the power. So survival depends on having a relationship to it that is not going to leave you dead, you know, or yeah. or completely without without any kind of um, way of, of surviving or your family surviving. So people do what they have to do under colonialism. That, But this is the way, you know, these, these are actually— the adjustments to colonialism, they're not something to be celebrated. All right. We are back on the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. You're listening to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA. And we just heard part of an interview with Native American historian and author Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She is the author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States. She is in conversation with KPFA's Letters and Politics host, Mitch Jezerich. What do you think, Shiloh? Well, I love this idea 
um, I find it so significant, this idea of free land, which is predicated on the erasure of the existence of the original peoples of this place. And she mentions that um, indigenous civilization was thriving for years before they even arrived. And I find it important for the truth to be spoken as to how the Scotch-Irish internalized the genocide that they first experienced and they brought it over the Atlantic Ocean and perpetuated it here when they got here. Um, and it reminds me of a quote by Audre Lorde in this idea that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us to temporarily beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And so I see this happening, and this is important for us to talk about and think about because of what's going on right now. This same sort of genocidal settler colonialist is acting its way out and playing its way out all throughout the world right now. We're seeing that everywhere. Recycling this genocidal way of being and existing is the foundation of the places that we call home right now, the entire West Coast. And she's going to talk about that even more in the next clip that we're about to play. So I want to tell you, I want to read one more paragraph from her book. The United States as a colonist settler state, one that, like the colonist European states, crushed and subjugated the original civilizations in the territories it now rules. Indigenous peoples, now in a colonial relationship with the United States, inhabited and thrived for a millennia before they were displaced to fragmented reservations and economically decimated. This is the history of the United States, and this is what is continuing to happen to this day. Definitely. And what got to me was that it sounded like the Scots-Irish learned the brutality from when their people were actually conquered back in their homelands by England. And in many ways, she points out how they were struggling and not being able to live where they were at. They were open to crossing the sea for free land in the new world. And when they got there, they turned that brutality that they learned back in their homelands um, on the indigenous people here in um, Turtle Island or what we call North America, the United States. And it did also get to me about the, um, the manicured land that she mentioned that it wasn't, it's the myth of the wilderness. They conquered the wilderness. No, it wasn't a wilderness. It was set up for thousands of years to be this perfect hunting ground with, like she said, deer parks. And I know my hunter friends will know what that is. But a lot of times what that is, is they will clear a huge space inside like a forest area or a place where deer like to congregate. And then they will burn the grasses at the right time. So when the grass grows, all the deer will go there to to get the grass and they will be have their hiding spots already ready there to be able to shoot them in the deer park. So um, that really got to me too. And uh, I did read the indigenous people's history. It's a great book and I recommend it. And I also recommend, of course, this conversation with Mitch and Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. Shiloh. I couldn't agree with you more, Franklin. I feel like, you know, just like the land wasn't free, Pacifica and KPFA isn't free either. And I know many of our listeners have heard about 
the U.S. Marshals taking $305,000 from our bank account in order to pay for a lawsuit that Pacifica lost. And it does leave us with very little money to operate. But we, and we can't guarantee what's going to happen with our funding, but one of the ways that listeners can support us right now and keep this station going is by becoming a monthly sustainer. And you can get over 2,000 hours of content on this Voices That Change the World gift from Pacifica Radio Archives collection by becoming a monthly sustainer for just the rate of $25 per month over the next year. And in addition, if you just want Mitch Jezeritz's letters and politics U.S. history, which talks about the actual U.S. history from multiple different perspectives, that can be yours for a gift of, for a donation of $10 a month for the next year as a sustainer. We really recommend that. Definitely. I am a monthly sustainer. If you are able right now, head over to kpfa.org and click on that donate tab. If you can't be a monthly sustainer, you can uh, donate and get the USB drive of Mitch or the Voices That Change the World for a one-time donation as well. And a big thank you to uh, all the callers on the line and people on online um, on the internet. And um, let's get back into the interview because we got a lot to share tonight and we want to get on with that. Um, this is between KPFA's Letters and Politics host, Mitch Jesuits and the author of the Indigenous People's History of the United States, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Coming up next, we will rejoin the conversation as they talk about the United States as a colonial power. When that started, uh, what it has become and what it has meant for indigenous people. Check it out. You also take on the narrative of the United States as not originally a colonial power. As, as, as sometimes we see the United States as a colonial power that begins with the Spanish-American War in 1898, because then we go into Cuba and the Philippines. Right. That's often the, the traditional take on it. That, yeah, that used to be the narrative. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, the colonialism that the U.S. was really born as a as a colonialist uh, entity. Is it 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 was really a split with the British Empire, and it was a split in even in you know who wanted to split. I mean, Canada made the transition to a Commonwealth status. Um, still being in the Commonwealth status and remained a colonialist power in relation to Native people without a Revolutionary War. Um, and a good many of the people who uh, opposed the revolution in the United States went to Canada. The ones from the South went to, uh, because they thought slavery was going to end, went to Brazil or Cuba but the, about half the population opposed the Revolutionary War, but none of them opposed colonialism. You know, it was just different different ways of looking at it. Um, we, we don't see our wars with the indigenous populations here the same way we see the wars that we're always talking about, Spanish-American yeah. War, Mexican-American War, World War One, World War Two. Well, what is meant by Indian Wars? Well, the Indian Wars really started in 1607, you know, with the Jamestown Settlement. These are uh, what they called at the time savage wars. 
The thesis is, and this is a thesis of colonialism in general, European colonialism, that these uh, that these barbarians, these brutes, these non-human people of you know the non-Western world, and who are not Christian, um, are not fully human. They're savages, so they call it savage war. And what they mean is that the only way to fight them, you hear this iteration all the time in the United States, the only thing Iraqis understand is is violence and power, and we've got to use more of it in order to get them to submit, or the Afghanis, or the Iranians, or the Venezuelans, or, you know, whoever. That's all they understand. Well, that's the—so we have to use— their methods in order to defeat them. So that's really the definition of colonial war, you know, a savage war. And um, and because it's, you know, not just, let's say, the kinds of wars that took place prior to colonialism, many of them very bloody, but they're, you know, they're, they're protecting exist or at least uh, um, observed boundaries that someone has crossed, um, or it has to do with, uh, you know, leadership spats and things like that, but not uh, crushing, completely crushing other people. You, you make strong connections between the so-called war on terrorism and the Indian Wars. When they went into—they did it in Korea, too. We just didn't know about it. But when they went into Vietnam and, and journalists, many journalists were there, and TV, and when they were using their code language of, um, uh, you know, that military people use, that we learned a lot of in the Gulf War, you know, the— um, these, you know, this, these, these terms like collateral damage and all that we didn't know before— well, in Vietnam, they're, they're constantly having references to—because all of their books and everything are based on the Indian Wars. These are the main wars of um, of the United States. And they, um, they, kept re they kept referencing Indian country, which means enemy territory. And, so they were saying about Vietnam? That's what they're, yeah, they're Vietnam, there. Yeah, Vietnam. That was when it was—and uh, then it gets shortened to in-country. So you hear it—I hear Rachel Maddow all the time saying, well, are you in-country now? You know, and without apparently thinking through, you know, she's saying enemy territory. Um, in-country. In-country is short for Indian country, in-country, that the military uses, and— it's interesting. Tom Hayden wrote a little book on it in uh, in nineteen nineteen seventy one seventy two, and it was called. He he was connecting up. Uh, it was not my influence. I didn't. I, I I had met him, but I you know I don't think I had any influence on him in this respect. But he had he had been really studying the U.S. military and military texts. And realizing this connection with the Indian Wars, so he, he started researching it, and and then he went through and found all of these uh, audio and printed interviews with very like Henry Cabot Lodge and you know John Negroponte and all these people that were 
over in um, uh, the diplomats in Vietnam, they were always saying the light at the end of the tunnel and all, but they were also saying, well, when the Indians get ready to plant corn, this is when we'll attack. And actually, they're, they're using the language of Indian wars for what should be about rice, probably. But mm. they're using their their metaphors of their military tradition in application. Hey, hey, KPFA listeners, we're back on 94.1 FM and kpfa.org. You're listening to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. You just heard another clip from the interview between Mitch Jezerich and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She's the author of an Indigenous People's History of the United States. Thanks for all of those folks who have been calling in tonight. We really appreciate it because we have exceeded our goal and we continue to raise funds for the station. Remember, it would really help us out if you become a monthly sustainer and get over the 2,000 hours of content just by pledging $25 a month. Or you can get Mitch Jesuit's history pack from Letters and Politics for a monthly contribution of $10 per month. Please donate securely online at kpfa.org and mention Full Circle in your comments. Much love, fam. Thank you, Shiloh, and thank you in advance for all those people about to jump on the line or online. And we're going to take another short music break. This is Kay Benali and Let's Just Be with their song, Angel. Cause we're killing them Seek the truth Cause you can't keep them Or shrink from what we need done Climbing climb 
chance to tag bricks for the hype your brains to help most have to work for the entire day this has been an emergency alert signal to all of the networks this isn't like you heard it here first she's only one out of the whole multi-universe you know you are hurting all mother earth Welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM, KPFA and KPFA.org. We are part of the Pacifica Radio Network. And that song you just heard was Angel and it was performed by Kay Benali and Let's Just Be. And you could definitely find a link to that video and all our music breaks tonight on our website, kpfaapprentice.org. Just after the show tonight, be sure to check that out. And again, a big thank you to everyone that has donated tonight and over these past two weeks to our holiday fundraiser. You helped us surpass our goal by an amazing amount. And I could tell from my conversations and meetings with uh, folks from inside the station that everybody is overwhelmed with joy and appreciation about this. So it's been amazing to just watch it grow. So thank you all again very much. We are continuing to raise funds tonight, even though the official fund drive has ended. So we're a little bit on the soft side and we're doing it um, just in hopes that you will continue to donate and keep us going over the top and uh, head on over to kpfa.org and click on that donate tab. If you feel moved to make a donation at any Time tonight. And tonight we are offering the USB drive of the voices that changed the world. This is a Pacifica Radio Archives collection of 1,800 hours of historic recordings from KPFA and the Pacifica Radio Network. The interview we are featuring tonight with Mitch Jesuits of right here of KPFA and Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz speaking about her book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. That's all part of that audio collection. Again, give us a click, kpfa.org. We appreciate anything you can do. That's my pitch. I hope you can um, click on that donate tab. I'm going to throw it back over to my co-host, Shiloh B. And uh, Shiloh is going to introduce our next clip from the interview. Uh, What do we got next, Shiloh? Next up, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz explains the importance of Geronimo, who was one of the first freedom fighters, and how distorted his narrative has become by the typical U.S. historian. Listen in as she drops the truth. Wasn't the code word for Osama bin Laden? Geronimo. Geronimo. Yeah. Geronimo is dead. That's what Obama himself said. And he didn't apologize for it when he was called on it. He, he ignored the call. It was outrageous, you know. Was, Who was Geronimo? Oh, Geronimo was the greatest freedom fighter in North America ever. Um, he was Apache, Chiricahua Apache. Uh, he was not a—these um, were not a—what you could call, like, Northern Plains, where they had developed a— a warrior culture, and there were, you know, the bison people, and um, 
they had developed that culture after colonialism as a kind of, you know, they pushed into the plains and they developed a very solid barrier to colonialism. But the Apaches, who were taken into the United States with the Mexican War, they were annexed into the— uh, not that Mexico was—they uh, were already fighting Mexican domination, so they they then ended up the border divided there. And so there were many different Apaches, and the Navajos are related to their Athabascan people who actually migrated, and we didn't ever get into migration, but migrated down from uh, Alaska. The Athab- There's still Athabascans up there. There are Athabascans in Canada, and these are the Athabascans, so they pretty well stopped in uh, northern Mexico. Uh, and were called by Westerners uh, Apache and Navajo. And so they speak Athabascan languages. So they came down um, two centuries before Europeans came. They had migrated down. So they're a large, you know, they're a large group um, all the way from Alaska to northern Mexico. And they're very, they're, um, they're, when they got to the Southwest, they became farmers, you know, planting small, you know, planting corn, beans, and squash like the people do there. Um, but when the Spanish um, came north, you know, to to conquer, um, they changed their lifestyle considerably as they saw the Pueblo Indians getting conquered because they're very— you know, much living in city-states, very vulnerable to conquest. It's, all you have to do is burn their fields and block their irrigation ditches and, you know, starve them out. Yeah. Um, and so they see this happening, and they're on the peripheries, and um, so they resist. So from the— really from the, mid, the early uh, 18th century— um, to the 1880s, there's they're a people of resistance, the Apaches. So when the Americans come in, um, they keep resisting. And part of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo between Mexico and the United States is a passage that each country um, will collaborate, but on their own also uh, destroy the Apache resistance. It's mm. actually a, a paragraph in the treaty that, and they both did, you know, but it ended up that um, almost all the Apaches, including the Chiricahua, were conquered, were put on a reservation in Arizona, and then were horribly mistreated uh, by the, you know, authorities, the bureaucrats the and the military, and insulted, and the the young women were taken as prostitutes, and all kinds of things happened. Hey, hey, this is KPFA's Full Circle, your cultural affairs magazine here on 94.1 FM and on kpfa.org, produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. We are your hosts tonight, Senti and Shiloh B, a.k.a. DJ Lowe along with Free Will and Franklin. And for those of you just tuning in, we are listening to a conversation between Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz and Mitch Jezerich. 
And we're also adding a bit of our own commentary, context, and responses. So the mythology around Geronimo Frank is actually really interesting. I found a copy of the New York Times 1909 obituary that contained a much different story than the one that she's about to tell us. And it stated that he was captured rather than surrendered. And if listeners, if you want to find out more, the link to the actual archive will be on our website, firstvoiceapprentice.org. So check that out after the show. Yeah, that's one thing I enjoyed about Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's book, uh, Indigenous People's History of the United States, is all the factual information and the documentation that kind of shows, um, you know, where they get um, her information from, from the documents. And yeah, I was upset to hear about um, they chose to use the name Geronimo to refer to Osama bin Laden. And it just goes to show that they continue to use this terminology today as they go on. Um, the United States goes on with their global domination and the imperialism and their invasions of other countries. If you can donate at this time, um, support KPFA and this work. Give us a click right now at kpfa.org and pick yourself up a huge trove of information such as this. It's called The Voices That Changed the World, and it's a collection of historical audio such as you're hearing tonight on a USB drive. And it's 1,800 hours. This collection that we are listening to is the Letters and Politics U.S. History Collection. It's just a small part of that 1,800 hours that you get with the Pacifica Radio Archives voices that changed the world. Let me give out the website one more time. That's kpfa.org. Head over there and click on that Donate tab. But now I'm going to throw it back over to DJ Lowe, a.k.a. Sentient Shy Lowe, to introduce our next clip of the interview. What's coming up next, DJ Lowe? Next, we hear about the Treaty of Guadalupe de Hidalgo, signed on February 2nd, 1848. For those of you in the know, that ended the war between the United States and Mexico. By its terms, Mexico ceded 55% of its territory, which includes the present-day states of California, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, Texas, most of Arizona and Colorado, and parts of Oklahoma, Kansas, and Wyoming. Mexico also recognized the Rio Grande as the southern boundary of the United States. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo brought an official end to this war, and after this clip, I'm going to share some of the actual texts that many of you may never have read or heard before, which again shows the true nature and foundation of the U.S., as the land of settler colonialism. Listen in to their conversation. Um, Geronimo took his, as a clan, they call it, you know, they call it a family, but not necessarily all related, a people, and decided to go to the mountains and uh, form a resistance. So they fought um, the United States for a good, um, starting in, the 1850s, and Geronimo was, never was—they were never captured. But when they surrendered um, for negotiations, they were only about a dozen people left, two or three women, some children, and, and four or five, and they were skinny. They were—I mean, they had held out. 
but they negotiated themselves as prisoners of war. So that meant they couldn't be put on trial by local authorities, by Arizona or New Mexico or Texas, you know, these, these rabid state governments, that, and nor could they be executed because they were prisoners. They actually negotiated under the Geneva Conventions, which was just extraordinary. But they, they, had, some, they had some Anglo allies, you know, that told them what their rights were. This is really interesting. Um, so first they were, you know, they were put in prison in Fort Way, uh, Fort Marion, uh, Florida, and then they were put in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. So that's where uh, Geronimo, where the people are buried today, where they lived the rest of their lives and died. What do you think about calling Osama bin Laden Geronimo? Osama bin Laden is not really representing, uh, let's say, like like Yasser Arafat represented Palestinians' uh, liberation, um, you know, or or others who've you know been representative of um, people's struggles. He's he collaborated, you know, with the United States, um, and led to uh that you know out of out of revenge uh for um the United States deserting i mean if he was he was a uh, an educated man he should have figured out that the United States always drops you know, these groups if they no longer need them and when they pulled out, you know, after they had formed the Mujahideen in the 1980s, that counterinsurgency um, that defeated the socialist president uh, um, and got him out of power, then the U.S. just abandoned the whole thing. And and so it was a revenge. And, you know, they blew up the—they they tried to, um, in 1996, to blow up the World Trade Center. Then they tried to— attack CIA headquarters and then 2001. So he wasn't an anti-imperialist. He, he was, it was more like a, a grudge that the United States had uh, let him down. So he wasn't really opposed to imperialism or, and because he, you know, he was uh, at least liberatory form of Muslim of Islam that exists so I no I think that um, it was basically calling Geronimo a terrorist as I think terrorism fits the bill for Osama bin Laden he's a terrorist you you know I've heard other groups being called terrorists that I wouldn't call terrorists even though they um, they commit some you know some atrocities against civilians, or civilians get are the, you know, are victims in some things they didn't really target them for. But Osama was, you know, pure, pure terrorism, and so I think it was, you know, for the military, it it's very important to them to cast their native enemies as first as super powerful. Because that makes them look more powerful. I mean, for instance, Sitting Bull, you know, they have as this powerful terrorist. Sitting Bull was a medicine man. 
He wasn't even a fighter. He was a medicine man. And and uh, Crazy Horse was a um, was a um, uh, a part of the 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 clan that took care of the women and children on their migrations, not you know the out and out warriors. So, but they like to portray these as big you know uh, fighters that they slay you know defeated. Um, and overcame because that then gives them more. Um, not that they were, you know, mostly killing women and children and burning their crops and <laughs> killing their buffalo. Um, they probably spent more time shooting buffalo to destroy 40 million, 40 million of those animals in 10 years. Um, not hunting, you know, just just killing them for the food supply, to destroy the food supply, the sustenance. Yeah, so I think it was it was definitely uh, characterizing Geronimo as a, as a terrorist. Uh, he never, ever fought anyone except the military. He never engaged against, you know, white communities even. Um, that wasn't his thing. It was keeping the military at bay and not getting caught, basically. Just holding out, you know, and that, that really means something, you know, historically when you think, um, yeah, someone like that can, can hold out, you know, and then maybe there would be some kind of change. And there was, you know, the, because up until then, they they simply killed, you know, they didn't do, nego- he insisted on negotiations. Welcome back to Full Circle, your cultural affairs magazine here on KPFA.org and 94.1 FM. 40 million buffalo in 10 years. So now we know, dear listeners, who the real terrorists are and who the real savages are, the settler colonialists. You know, Frank, I believe that we need to know the truth about the people in this land and how people stood up to U.S. empire to demand and negotiate for survival and for their clan and their members so that we don't continue to accept this idea that, oh, that's just the way things are. Someone like him held out and stood up. And as far as I'm concerned, he is a hero. And we just heard how he was one of the first ones to ever do that. And because of that, he was the first one to not be silenced or murdered. Geronimo was a freedom fighter for the original peoples of this land and not a terrorist. And we just heard a bit about the Treaty Guadalupe of Hildago, and I wanted to share a bit from the actual text. This is how it begins. In the name of Almighty God, the United States of America and the United Mexican States, animated by the sincere desire to put an end to the calamities of the war, which unhappily exists between the two republics, and to establish upon a solid basis relations of peace and friendship, which shall confer reciprocal benefits upon the citizens of both, and assure the concord, harmony, and mutual confidence wherein the two people should live as good neighbors. So this is just for, again, the citizens and the settlers of both Mexico and the U.S. Later in the text, in Article 11, it says, For the purpose of giving to those these stipulations the fullest possible efficacy, thereby affording the security and redress demanded by their true spirit and intent, the government of the United States will now and hereafter pass 
without unnecessary delay, and always vigilantly enforce such laws as the nature of the subject may require. And finally, the sacredness of this obligation shall never be lost sight of by the said government. When providing for the removal of the Indians from any portion of the said territories, or for it being settled by citizens of the United States. This, Frank, is the law of this land, settler colonialism. That's right. And uh, it continues to this day. And I appreciate all the work that you did in um, digging up the quotes from the treaty, um, Shiloh. So thank you very much. And once again, we're about to go into one more clip. We're running out of time tonight. Um, but if you feel moved to make a donation to KPFA tonight, the stations that, that is getting you this information, if you could head on over to kpfa.org and click on that donate tab, you can get uh, this interview with Mitch Jezerich and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She's the author of an Indigenous People's History of the United States. And in this next clip, we're going to hear about the doctrine of discovery and what it meant for indigenous people when someone can come in and steal your land in the name of God. So let's check out this next clip and we'll be right back to full circle right here on KPFA. If you want to make a donation anytime, just head over to kpfa.org. We'll be right back after this. Does this get us to the doctrine of discovery? Yeah, well, the doctrine of discovery is um, uh, is this cluster of these papal bulls that makes up the doctrine of discovery. Wherever a European Christian uh, monarch sends people and they find, you know, they they touch it and they um, that then makes it theirs and. They, the Spanish had this, uh, this, this thing they read, you know, uh, telling people in a language that people didn't understand that now you are under the kingdom of, <laughs> of Spain and um, you have no rights anymore and this is our land. So that's basically the doctrine of discovery. And it, it could seem to be a humorous kind of outmoded thing, you know, with a national liberation of uh, of such. I mean, neocolonialism exists, but basically that direct colonialism, Africa, Asia, um, and the Caribbean are gone. If it weren't for um, the fact that the United States, and I, I think it is, um, even in Latin America, it's a fairly moribund, you know, it's not invoked. But here in the United States, which has this, you know, constitutional law and a Supreme Court and all, they actually uh, indemnified it into the Constitution with several uh, Supreme Court decisions. Thomas Jefferson had already, when he was president, said, said, you know, just stated that the doctrine of discovery also applies to us, um, that we own this, you know, every everything that's out there. As far as you can go, uh, this is, it, it is ours. Uh, so he just said it, but then the courts under John Marshall made these decisions where they um, invoked the doctrine of discovery and created this this concept of uh, 
domestic dependent nations and that um, did not have uh, in it, did not actually own their land. You know, they could be out of the graciousness of the United States, which he recommended, by the way, for the Cherokees and to Jackson, you know, let's be generous and let them stay there. You know, it's their traditional homeland. But which Jackson ignored him. Yeah, well, but they didn't have any real rights. Yeah. So the Supreme Court decision um, is just set in stone. And then even as we are, you know, would argue about the doctrine of discovery and say that it has to be renounced and trying to get the papacy to renounce it, and then it would be easier for us here to get that uh, a Supreme Court decision, they'd say, well, you know, that's just, you know— that was the 1820s. It's, you know, it's no longer necessarily being implemented, except in 2006, there was a Supreme Court decision in an Oneida Indian land claims case, and it was not founded on its merits. Well, do they have a case or don't they have a case that this, you know, to get this land back? Rather, they said it's redundant because it is in the hands of these white owners, and that um, the doctrine of discovery makes it, you know, impossible to return it because it was discovered and it's occupied by white people. Uh, so it was invoked again, and that was a unanimous decision. It was the Scalia court. It was already that right-wing court. But it was a unanimous decision, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the opinion that means she was the main advocate of of uh, the doctrine of discovery. Wow, the doctrine of discovery. This is full circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and kpfa.org and we're featuring clips tonight from an interview with KPFA's own Mitch Jezerich and Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, the author of an indigenous people's history of the United States. Shiloh, you got some more information on the Doctrine of Discovery. Thanks for looking all this information up. Uh, tell us more. So the Doctrine of Discovery was the international law that gave license to explorers to claim vacant land in the name of their sovereign. So vacant land was that which was not populated by Christians. We all know that there were original people thriving here before that. If the lands were not occupied by Christians, they were considered vacant and therefore could be defined as quote-unquote discovered, and sovereignty, dominion, title, and jurisdiction was claimed. It's not enough, though, to speak about the facts, to debunk this myth like we talked about in the beginning. How might acknowledging the reality of the U.S. history work to transform society? We need to go beyond that now. So it's not enough to talk about the facts. Let's talk about reclaiming everything that was stolen. And listeners, I'm going to tell you about how to do that. Go to our website. We have tons of links. We will reclaim the land, the language, the ceremony, food, education, housing, healthcare, governance, medicine, kinship. I could go on and on. So if I've got you fired up, check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org for links on how to get involved, do the work, support land back, Pay your land tax, a.k.a. Shumi. And if you're in the Bay, go to the Segorate Land Trust because that's where it's at. And if not, 
the Indian Collective is also a great place to start. That's the letters N-D-N Collective. Yep, that brings us to the end of tonight's show, and thank you for listening tonight as we learn and speak the actual origins of this country and how we predicated, how it's been predicated on the erasure of the existence of the original peoples. This show has been a labor of love and a call to tell the truth about colonialism and most importantly, how to resist and survive, get involved. Check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show to learn more about settler colonialism, resistance, land back, and paying your shoe tax. Shout out to the Full Circle crew, and thanks for tuning in, and remember to tune inward to tell the truth about yourself and how you show up in the world. That is the only way forward towards justice, and may love as action continue to move you in all you do in 2022 and next year in 2023. All right, yeah, and stay tuned to KPFA. Up next is La Onda Bajita, and while you're out there, everybody, please remember to protect your health and also your humanity. And we'll check you all out on the other side. Everyone have a good night.